the, the first thing I've, I've been given a petition for the reinstatement of Andrew Hood, the former editor of the Letters page of the Scotsman, who was sacked for, as it says here, for refusing to eradicate pro-Scottish Parliament and anti-Thatcherite letters from the correspondence columns of Scotland's national newspaper. So if this petition comes round, then you know what it's for. So The other thing is uh, information on tonight's reading and draw attention to the workshop that will be taking place with uh, Victor Kravulin, Alexei Ostrovich and uh, Misha Katzen, which is a they're from Leningrad and they'll be discussing things related to to that, you know, the interesting things there is how we, which I find interesting is how the Sam is that the culture operates because occasionally I feel, I feel in fact that that's a situation we're in and there's no point in talking about institutional structures. And to me it's just a waste of time. The reality is that the need is long past for a different way of looking at how to operate. As, for example, the people involved in New Beacon Books here, the people who have been involved in organising on different levels, who just assume the need to organise on your own and make networks. It's well past the time for stuff about institutions. Now, about tonight's reading, Victor Kravulin will be reading this evening. I hope John LaRose will be reading, I haven't seen him. Also, I hope that Zoe Weekholm will also read something. If not, she should maybe give a good reason why that match. We'll discuss that later, Zoe. There's also Hamish Henderson and uh, Angus McNichol. And the music tonight will be by uh, Alan Tall and John Gregg, followed by a Kayleigh Band. That begins from about quarter to eight. should also mention about the video. We're filming this event just now. And if people have had interference from the video film people, you just have to... Except that it's not the BBC or ITV or something, we, they, they will be controlling it. There won't be any sub-editorial team, and it won't be the Guardian who will do their own hatchet job if they want to do it, or whoever. We were prepared for the usual media distortion anyway. None of that surprises us. I don't even even bother reading it, frankly. Uh, so if you're, if you're disturbed by the film, then you know it's been done. And it'll be shown in various places to people who would have wanted to have come but didn't have the space, community of various people. Uh, what other, no other announcements. Uh, the, the, the theme of this morning's talk is common sense and freedom. And I should maybe draw attention to why I think that the title's appropriate, why, in fact, I, I became involved in this line of thought, basically. It was extended from doing an essay on uh, Noam Chomsky's work. And some of the things that were going on there related to what I was reading at the time, an essay's being published in the Edinburgh Review by Peter Kravitz on Scottish philosophy. And the things that I found interesting were, just even in relation to Noam Chomsky's paper yesterday when he was speaking about David Hume, that when I was at the philosophy department at university, for example, David Hume was the only Scottish philosopher that was ever mentioned, apart from maybe Duns Scotus. And it's really interesting to look at what was going on, say, in that period in Scottish history and related to what was happening elsewhere, when a certain philosophical view or a certain way of looking at common sense or how it is we know things was prevalent in what was going on at the period. There were exciting things going on in terms of politics. At the time just before the United Scotsman, when they were making links with United Irishmen, 
the people involved with the radical politics of the period, Thomas Muir and many weavers, Alexander Wilson from Paisley, James Wilson, who was later executed in 1819. Official history describes him as an illiterate. His nickname was Purley, and that was because he invented the pearl stitch. This type of creativity was going on at the same time as this philosophical tradition was part of, in the way that any ideas are part of a general way of looking at things. This was what was going on. So these types of things I found interesting because it also coincided with the common sense uh, tradition as it was in France, for example, through Rousseau and the effects that were happening there. Not only did you have the French Revolution coming around about the same time, you also had what was going on in Haiti. You had the Haitian Revolution. It's just, it's interesting that uh, when that tradition comes to an end, there's, there's also certain other things going on. Uh, these points, anyway, were what are related and became more interested, basically, in this position of uh, Noam Chomsky's, and also this position is related to Scottish philosophical tradition. I don't think I'm going to. I think I'll just leave that for part of the discussion, because just this paper was a very dense paper, and I think a, a great deal of what will happen today will be a discussion. All the discussion gets beyond looking at uh, how we can change the Labour Party or something. I mean, it's stupid, you know. Uh, <clears throat> and it, it's really, it's just time. It's really, otherwise, it's just wasted opportunities. Because people are involved in situations just now here in this room in which they're changing and trying to change. And just assume the media is rubbish. They assume it's dishonest. All it does is prop up a, an unhealthy state of affairs. We assume it. It's time just to start from that point. That is the premise. Begin from there. That's why people have travelled for us to discuss these points, how to organise these things. No, Johnson. Well, I'm torn between somewhat conflicting impulses. Uh, one is uh, a sense of duty, which uh, uh, I suppose fits the Calvinist environment or something. And that is to talk about what I've been asked to talk about, uh, which also happens to be something that I find intriguing and puzzling, questions of common sense and freedom. Uh, the second is a, uh, a good deal of sympathy for much of what I heard expressed at the uh, plenary session the other day, what I, yesterday, what I could catch of it, uh, a sense that uh, there's something deeply unsatisfying about general and abstract discussion of topics that have enormous human significance and that does not uh, direct itself to application to concrete, specific situations of oppression and injustice and poverty and suffering and what can be done about them. Now, if we take the second course, we have to be serious about it. Uh, the topics are too significant for glib comment. Uh, and uh, we immediately discover that however much insight we might gain about uh, general matters of self-determination and freedom and the nature of justice and human rights and so on, it's not going to apply with any very great specificity to particular 
personal or historical situations, because there's too much that's complex and intricate and specific uh, about those situations. Uh, so there are, you can gain insight into general precepts, and they're sometimes helpful, uh, but a lot of work has to be done before you uh, uh, apply them uh, to real situations. And that's true whether you're talking about uh, problems of self-determination and power, say, inside a family, or, uh, or you're talking about educational policy, or uh, uh, problems of national self-determination, which is the place where the phrase self-determination usually arises, though, of course, it doesn't only apply there. Uh, so if you want to talk about, say, Ireland or the Kurds or the Igbo or uh, Israel and Palestine or whatever, uh, you have to uh, look into the detailed problems that arise in those particular situations and consider the historical particularities. Uh, glib comments are not only useless, but in fact harmful. Now, if I were to take the second course, then I'd keep the things that I have thought about. Uh, so in the case of national self-determination, I wouldn't presume to say anything, say, about Ireland. Uh, I would talk, say, about Israel and Palestine, where what I say would be right or wrong or you know, stupid or intelligent, but at least based on inquiry and thought and looking at the complexities of the situation. And the same is true for any other of a wide range of issues of uh, direct human concern. Now, it seems to me that in a conference of this kind, what makes sense is for those topics to be the focus of discussion in uh, uh, working groups uh, where people come together with uh, an interest and an understanding and the concern for uh, the specificities and the concrete substantive issues. Uh, and in these general sessions, uh, nothing much can be done beyond some remarks about the, the precepts, the general topics. And I'm going to follow that course today, uh, in fact, try to make a compromise. I will follow duty and keep to the topic of common sense and freedom, but I'll also be rather brief about it so that there's more time for discussion, which I'd like to hear. Uh, with regard to the uh, question of common sense and freedom, there, there is a very rich tradition which takes the, as its starting point, the idea that uh, people have natural rights uh, and that any institutional structure that infringes upon those rights is illegitimate. And if it can be justified, it's only a sort of a temporary contingent justification uh, under particular circumstances. And one has to be questioning about such justifications. Now, these intrinsic rights are held to be natural rights, that is, part of human nature, and human nature is part of the natural world, uh, and uh, if it's part of the natural world, we ought to be able to learn about it by rational inquiry, and to some extent, we, extent we can. There is, but uh, social theory, and an even more important, social practice, cannot be held in abeyance uh, while science makes its halting steps towards discovering the truth about human nature, and philosophy makes its perhaps still more halting steps towards uh, exploring and clarifying the connection which we all sense exists between uh, rights and the 
the nature in which they're rooted, a tricky and complicated question. So we have to make an intuitive leap as human beings, as moral agents. Uh, we have to make an intuitive leap and establish a posit and take a certain view and conception uh, as to what human nature is and what rights grow out of it uh, and what the structure of institutions uh, and interpersonal arrangements uh, is legitimate uh, with relation to what we take to be uh, intrinsic human needs and intrinsic human rights that grow from them. Uh, now, any moral reasoning, any, any decision uh, with regard to a choice of action that's taken by a person of integrity, a person who regards himself or herself as a moral agent, that is, who considers their actions to be judged by criteria of right or wrong, any such reasoning is, is based implicitly, at least, on some conception of this sort. Uh, a moral act is uh, undertaken, an act with moral, in the moral realm is undertaken, at least in part and maybe wholly, uh, in terms of some consideration of the likely human consequences and whether those human consequences will accord with human needs and human rights. Uh, now, some say, you know, religious pacifists might argue that that's not all that's required, that the use of violence is wrong, uh, even if it happens to uh, satisfy and defend fundamental human needs and rights. One can question whether that's a moral stance or an immoral stance. But without going into those non-trivial issues, still it's true that a large part and maybe all of moral judgment is based on an assessment of the consequences and an evaluation of those consequences with regard to intrinsic human rights and intrinsic human needs. And such an assessment can only be made on the basis of at least an implicit conception, an implicit theory, if you like, of what human nature is. And a moral agent will undertake such reasoning. A person who takes himself or herself seriously as a person of integrity will uh, undertake such reasoning to the extent that you can and we'll also try to clarify the principles and the grounding uh, uh, of the judgments as much as one can. That's what it means to be a moral human being, whether you're dealing with your children or uh, you know, foreign affairs or whatever it is. Now, uh, there are a number of views about these topics that have been developed over the years, but they are really intuitive judgments. They go well beyond the reach of uh, scientific inquiry. Uh, one conception is that uh, a fundamental human need and hence a fundamental human right is the uh, right and the need to inquire and to create uh, free of external compulsion. That's in fact uh, a leading doctrine of classical liberalism in its original 18th century version, not the version that reaches us uh, through say Margaret Thatcher or something like that, but in its original version, in fact I was quoting from Wilhelm von Humboldt, who directly inspired John Stuart Mill. Uh, and uh, uh, from this conception of human nature, that its fundamental basis is a need to inquire and create free from human, from any external compulsion, you derive certain consequences. The consequence that Humboldt and his followers, the classical liberal followers derived, was that whatever does not spring from free choice, but only from instruction and guidance is alien to our nature. 
uh, if a laborer, uh, if a worker labors under compulsion or a student produces on demand, uh, as Humboldt put it, we mean uh, uh, direction, uh, guidance, and force, any kind of force, otherwise not. Now that's a certain picture of, uh, from, from that you can continue to spell out a conception of what the world ought to be like. Well, I think that's a rather attractive view, at least for people of any faith in human worth and dignity, and it does ground a certain social theory uh, and certain choices of course of action. Uh, now, counterposed to that, there's a very different view, uh, a view which in fact has been dominant in uh, modern intellectual discourse about these topics for the last several centuries, uh, and that's the doctrine that is sometimes called the empty organism theory, uh, that people have no intrinsic nature, that human nature is just a historical and cultural product, uh, and that the mind is a blank slate on which experience writes whatever it wants, uh, and that uh, people become whatever instruction and guidance makes them. That's a view which uh, is uh, familiar from modern, though not classical liberalism, it's explicit in Marx's theory, where it takes a particular form, and in fact, it's the dominant uh, conception of, of, of modern intellectual discourse on these matters. And that view also has its consequences. One consequence is that there is no moral barrier whatsoever to compulsion, uh, since there's no intrinsic human nature, and uh, human, the human essence is just whatever experience and culture and history make it, there's no barrier in the way of compulsion or um, shaping of behavior or manufacture of consent. Uh, there's nothing uh, that stands in the way of uh, those who claim the right to uh, coerce and control. And notice that that's also an attractive view, namely from the point of view of those who undertake that task and consider that their task, the task of control and coercion. And I. My own feeling is that the reason for the prevalence of this doctrine uh, from what's called left to right is because it is so attractive. It's so attractive to the commissars, to the intellectuals, the people who want the right to control and therefore want to eliminate the moral barriers to control. Well, from that conception follows a different notion of what are legitimate social institutions uh, and legitimate courses of social action. Uh, well, apart from hopes and preferences, uh, what can we learn about truth and falsehood? Uh, uh, if we want to discover which of these or maybe some other view is correct, uh, we have to proceed by the methods of inquiry that we undertake when we try to learn whether anything else is true or correct. Again, whether it's in personal life or in scientific research, not all that different. Uh, now here, we have to begin by refining and clarifying these notions and then subjecting them to uh, uh, direct inquiry, experiment if possible, and so on. Now that's actually been done in some areas, limited areas, and it has some success and there are some interesting results. Uh, one of the areas in which it's been done is one of those that's just mentioned in the introductory, uh, uh, in the pamphlet or whatever it was, the notification for this conference where there was discussion of the notion of innate knowledge, uh, what Hume described as that part of our knowledge that 
comes to us from the original hand of nature, what in modern terms would be called that part of our knowledge that uh, derives from genetic endowment. Now here, there's a lot of work, and uh, its general conclusion is that Hume vastly understated and underestimated that part of our knowledge that comes to us from the original hand of nature, and that a much more accurate perception was given by his predecessors, uh, for example, the, uh, the English Platonists of the uh, 17th century, or Lord, Lord Herbert, or the Continental Rationalists, who assumed, and it turns out, as far as we know rightly, that there's a very rich uh, uh, structure of innate uh, concepts and principles that lead to the growth of modes of perception and understanding and interpretation and judgment and evaluation and inquiry and creation and so on, uh, and that this is what leads to the possibility, uh, to, to the human ability to attain rich and highly articulated and complex systems of understanding and thought, um, largely shared with others and serving as the basis for everything from social interaction to personal discovery and creation. Now, in any area where we know anything, this seems to be the conclusion. Uh, one can still maintain the empty organism theory for areas where we don't know anything. You can say, well, maybe where we don't know anything, it's true, uh, but that's not a very uh, convincing position. Uh, but I think that's, roughly speaking, uh, a fair conclusion from, from present understanding. From this point of view, it looks as though uh, uh, teaching is uh, an irrelevance, largely, uh, and even learning is sort of an artifact, which happens only at the margins, and personal development and growth, uh, growth of the mind is like growth of the body, or to be more precise, like growth of other parts of the body, since mental organs are just one species of physical organ. Uh, that shouldn't be a terribly surprising result. It shouldn't be too surprising to discover that human beings above the neck are very much like human beings below the neck, and in fact, like everything else in nature. Uh, but that would be the conclusion that, that we, we know that that's true of everything else in nature, of every other complex organism. And as far as we know, it's also true of the mind. Uh, contrary to uh, received doctrine uh, of the sort that's dominated intellectual discourse. Now, again, I want to stress that these are only small areas. Most of the topics that interest and concern us, essentially nothing's known. Uh, any layperson knows as much as uh, uh, the scientist who's dedicated a, you know, a lifetime of inquiry to these topics, but there's some small areas where a lot is known, and this seems to me a kind of a fair resume of the kind of thing that's known. Well, where does that leave us with regard to social action and practice? Answer, very far away. Uh, there still remains an enormous gap between what we have to grasp in order to ground moral action, to choose a course of action on moral grounds, enormous gap between that and what we in fact understand about human nature and the human needs that uh, derive from it and the human rights that derive from it. Big gap, so we're left where we were with uh, the need to make an intuitive leap and uh, uh, to posit some judgment about what real intrinsic human nature is, uh, to try to evaluate and ground it as best we can, always take a critical attitude toward your assumptions, 
uh, and apply them where they can, but recognizing that there's a, in a sense, you're, you're staking your faith in what you think or hope human beings may be. Now, if you take as your faith uh, that of, say, the classical liberal doctrine, uh, you will conclude that there is no justification, there's no moral justification for the uh, commissar or the central committee or the uh, uh, cultural or corporate manager uh, or any of the others who uh, control and coerce us on uh, specious grounds. Notice that from this point of view, uh, the what is regarded as the progressive position, the one that's reflected in, say, modern liberalism or Marxist thought and so on, is actually deeply conservative and reactionary. It serves to legitimate existing institutions or other institutions of authority and compulsion. In contrast, the actual classical liberal view, which is very different from what is known, uh, with its deep innateist roots, is very subversive and radical uh, because it challenges the existence of any form of authority and requires that it be justified, which can rarely be done. Uh, it's not too surprising, I think, that the actual ideas of the Enlightenment have been subjected to such a broad-ranging uh, attack. They are radical and subversive. Uh, and uh, because of the faith that they express in uh, human capacity and human rights and human needs and their richness, uh, and that's a deeply upsetting view from the point of view of any institutional structure uh, which is concerned with control and manipulation or any of the people who uh, uh, operate within those institutional structures. And of course, those who do attain a position of being articulate where they can reach the public, uh, well, they're the ones who, uh, in fact, satisfy the needs of the institutions. They're the ones who are called intellectuals, so it's not too surprising that these are the dominant views, the dominant articulated views. Uh, there is constant resistance to them on the part of the general public, and I think that's quite healthy and realistic. It's a resistance to infringement on fundamental human rights. Well, if one takes this position, the next thing to do uh, is to, uh, to make the intuitive leap and turn to the concrete substantive questions of uh, acting as a moral agent, choosing a course of action. And here what you do is seek out structures of authority and domination. Uh, often we don't see them, so you have to try to find them even though they're there. Once you notice them, you see them. Uh, and uh, uh, seek them out, uh, ask the question as to whether they in fact are legitimate for some contingent reason, say self-defense or whatever argument is put forth. Uh, and if they fail that test, as they almost invariably do, uh, to move forward to dismantle them, which means solidarity and organization and so on. Uh, that's a hard task. Uh, you can look back at history and gain a certain degree of encouragement from it, uh, but you'll also learn from history that, uh, that a lot of suffering that goes on in acting like a moral agent uh, suffering and satisfaction, both. Uh, and, but there are achievements. Uh, there are real achievements. It's not for most of human history, for example. Uh, literal human slavery was considered legitimate, in fact, considered quite praiseworthy. It was for the benefit of these depraved creatures who shouldn't be left on their own. 
Uh, it's, only, it's only a little tiny period of human history where this is considered a total obscenity. Uh, and the fact that it is considered a total obscenity is an achievement. Uh, in the 18th century, it was pointed out that wage slavery is fundamentally not very different from slavery. Uh, it's, uh, if people are compelled to rent themselves in order to survive, it's not very different than selling yourself in order to survive. That's an insight that has yet to be recovered, but it's a valid one. Uh, and in fact, notice that it grows from these same conceptions of human nature. Uh, but at least literal human slavery is, would no longer be justified by, I suppose, almost anyone, maybe Roger Scruton or someone, but almost no one. Uh, that's an achievement. It's a moral achievement. It's a moral advance. Uh, just in our own lifetimes, uh, the uh, questions of the legitimacy of, of sexist oppression have come to the fore. It's not that they were never noticed before, but they, there's been a sustained and committed effort to bring them to consciousness. And it's not long ago, anybody my age will know that it's not long ago, they just didn't see it. You know, you notice it, it's just part of the background. Now at least you see it, the problems are there, but it's a moral advance that the problems are recognized to be there. There's some effort to come to terms with them. Uh, and the uh, same is true in every other domain. Take, say, freedom of speech, which is in many ways the fundamental human freedom. If you don't have freedom of speech, you don't have anything else. Uh, the battle for freedom of speech has been a long and bitter one, and it's very far from one. Uh, in this respect, the United States is maybe the most advanced country. At least there's a there's a structural guarantees for freedom of speech of a sort that don't exist anywhere else, as far as I know. Uh, but that's very recent, uh, and it's worth bearing in mind that it's very recent. Uh, theoretically, freedom of speech is established by the First Amendment to the Constitution, but that's pure theory, never meant a thing. Uh, the freedom of speech barely existed throughout most of American history long after the Bill of Rights. Uh, in fact, that was understood at the time. James Madison, one of the major authors, pointed out that a, what he called a parchment barrier will never stand in the way of tyranny. Uh, rights are not gained by writing down words on paper, but by constant struggle to achieve them and to uh, discover what they are and to secure them and to defend them. And there has been a long struggle in the United States, uh, the labor movement and the, uh, the anti-war movement and civil rights movement and other popular movements finally expanded the domains of freedom of speech uh, to the point where they reached, in fact, by 1969 uh, in the Supreme Court, they finally reached the libertarian standard that had been declared by people like, say, Jeremy Bentham in 1776. And I think the United States is alone in this respect. Uh, now, that's typical. Uh, the all of human history is a history of uh, everything that's decent in human society that I can think of derives from unremitting and constant popular struggle to identify human nature and its characteristics to determine the rights that follow from it and to fight for those rights. Uh, that's not an easy task. If there's another way to achieve it than constant struggle, it has yet to be made public.
just uh, another word again about just just in, introduce George Davy properly. I mean, I think that just to, to be aware of what he's been doing over the last number of years, working away and making things known that really, in a sense, uh, I feel quite strongly might not be known just now if, if George Davy hasn't or hadn't been working in the way he has for so long. And it's great that he's come along today to say something about his work. George. Well, right. Uh, oh, sorry. It must be audible, all right. But they, uh, no, it, it's um, not so easy to come after Professor Chomsky and the, the quite uh, scintillating performance uh, yesterday at the press uh, conference he gave, for example, in the lecture. Uh, yesterday and the lecture today, and they, they, I was only intending to speak for um, the, 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 uh, uh, a few minutes, and uh, I, I, I will uh, try to straighten myself out. He, he, Professor Chomsky stopped before I thought he would, but uh, I, nevertheless, I'm not not to go on very long. Now, the, the, um, he began yesterday with uh, reference to. Local boy David Hume and so forth. Now this, of course, is not um, we, we, is not terribly well known in Scotland. I have an Indian, an Indian colleague at Edinburgh University who is very much amused to find that uh, the, the students in India, the universities, would all know at least the names of the famous Indian philosophers Sankara and so forth, and nothing else. But he had tested the students at Edinburgh, and uh, they didn't know any. Names of including Hume had meant nothing to them until they had uh, Adam Smith. They had heard of the connection, but that was all. They, 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 so I, they, they, but still, traditions can be a dead weight, and it's been a considerable. They, they have an advantage in Scotland that they haven't bothered about their tradition, but just started afresh. Although it often meant that they, they did the same thing again and again. They, they, they but. Um, Anyway, now I don't want to bother you with that stuff very much, but to start off with the Hume thing and what Professor Chomsky said about quoting from Hume that politics was based on, to some extent, on opinion. The government had, so to speak, in order to keep its position, to make some show of persuading that it's a few were persuading the majority, so to speak, to accept their rule, to accept that they were right. And humor does raise this as a kind of a puzzle. It's amazing how the governments manage, so to speak, to do this, the few persuading the many. And now, what he had a more narrow view, which nevertheless it's more than relevant, I'm not bothering with human history uh, at all, but, but um, when he was speaking about that, the, the, and the point can best be brought out by reference, I think, to uh, something I had said in discussion long ago in the early 60s, uh, the School of African Studies in Edinburgh, when Nkrumah had published a philosophy book and they had a discussion about it. And uh, it was one of the Africans there discussing, commenting upon the thing, 
with very considerable humour. He was speaking about, uh, I don't even may not be meant to be accurate, uh, but uh, this is what he said about the, uh, the organisation for African unity in its early days. He said it was very much influenced by the fact that uh, the educational systems in the African, emergent African countries tend to be either influenced or based on the British model or the French model. And he said this came out very much in the discussion. They would get bogged down finally on, on the question of principles where those with the French basis would keep orating about the Greek philosophy and those with the British basis would uh, keep speaking about down to our statistics. Now, in, in this particular thing is relevant because Hume wasn't, though he was a great statistician and his bestseller was a popular book on economics, but he would have sided, so to speak, there with the French rather than the British. You had to follow up the statistics with the Greek philosophy or else something like it. And, and, they, and, and this, of course, in a way, had a very definite meaning even for the business of making it selling his own books. He had wished that the British in politics was more interested in first principles. Duncan Ford brought a book, Hume's Philosophical Politics. And the, 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 the thing was that Hume was irritated. He thought that they could do more in Britain to go back to these subjects of first principles and not just stick to statistics. And of course he made some impression for a bit but on the whole, he didn't make much impression, and the French thing, which was just emerging, was more to his taste. Incidentally, in that connection, if I can allude to what seems a, a very subject liable to raise considerable storms, what was said by the women yesterday, it was in that particular point that Hume made his contribution feminism, which he wasn't terribly interested in, but he said that the that one advantage of the French system of widening the thing was that, at least in polite society, it brought the women in. They, they didn't retire after dinner, so to speak, to the drawing room to let the gentlemen drink their coffee and brandy. They joined in the conversation about politics, philosophy, life in general. This meant over and above the statistics, of course, there was religion, there was culture, and there was personal relations, and that sort of thing. Now, that just by way of a kind of, sensibly long introduction to, to, to what, what, what I was to say about one or two things in, in the position of the, the Scottish philosophers, not so much read whom uh, was very well written about by James Kelman, who would have been uh, perhaps better fitted to do this, uh, what I'm doing myself, than I am. But not, not, to, uh, not to speak so much about Reed, and, uh, as about uh, in reference in general to Hume, uh, and of course the uh, much uh, Adam Smith, who in the whole was the greatest of the Scottish philosophers. Uh, I mean, he, he, he was quite a chap, you see. Like when Chomsky appears, no one, no <laughs> advertisements in the papers or anything like that in Edinburgh, and yet they had 400 people and dozens tumbled away from a lecture in Edinburgh. Well, Smith was a professor in Glasgow, and it got around Europe 
that there was a professor in Glasgow who had something new to say. And people came to him from Russia, from all over the place. But they, they, but they, they that just by the way. But they, to get now to the background of this and make a point, which is to some extent raising a query for Professor Chomsky. They, they, it was um, Hume, Professor Chomsky was right in saying that uh, what Hume said about uh, politics being based on opinion was uh, a, a, to do with more developed and primitive society. And Hume, of course, was very definite about that. Uh, that, that primitive society, the foundations of society, uh, didn't really have to do with opinion. Uh, people didn't uh, decide that getting together would be a good thing and then get together, so to speak. They, they, they were, were, were together from the start. They, 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 and and uh, human life is social from the start, he said. And, and uh, the, the, the important point was then was his definition of indication of social. Because he said the social bond he took to be, uh, the, the one of distinguishing it, is the division of labor. Bishop Barclay had said that the human thing was labor. But uh, Hume, indeed, Hutchison, and so forth, they said it was the division of labor. So that they exchanges and so forth, uh, something like the market. Now, they, they, this was, of course, on a very small scale. He just, they distinguished between, and this is still do, between the, the ideal face-to-face -face society and a more extended society where people in the one part don't know what they are, are, are going on. And so the second sort of government arises. Now, the point I want to make that has some bearing on Professor Chomsky is that uh, people like that, and I'm not speaking about Hume or Adam Smith, but the, the, the classical philosophers, they, they wouldn't have, uh, for a moment, thought that there were anything but a plurality of societies, uh, which were, they, 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 they could come in conflict with one another. This was the thing. And they, 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 the urban society in growth, Hume says, the uh, mother of cities are camps. And it's the, the, the the power and so forth is these temporary appointments of leaders in these particular kind of businesses of communities defending themselves. And this is a basic feature of society. It tends to be missed out in speaking about society in general. But there it is, the plurality. Now, on the point... The, the second point in, in reference to that, that you get from these people, and particularly in reference to Hume, of societies develop in different directions, especially because of this useful concept of division of labor. It, it, it's carried less far in, in, in some, some are in that sense backward. That they, then the division of labor is not carried far, and people tend to be jacks of all trades, and then in other more advanced societies, of course, they're not, they're more specialized. And, and uh, in, in that connection, he doesn't think, and these people, the other classical philosophers, they don't really think that there is going to be easy to get any kind of elimination of that or evening out. And this is where there's some reference to what. Professor Chomsky said about those who consider human nature as having a, a, a structure and those who consider 
human nature as being plastic, whether it's not a, whether it is or not. Now, Hume made the distinction in, in the, the, the general things between the, 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 what he said, the, 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 the uh, division of labor and advanced, well, something like the market society, and the other societies where the division of labor was not so advanced, but where you got something like a command economy, as we would call it. In that particular case, he was thinking of the great continental monarchies, which were all protective and interventionist, although very often nothing much came of their interventionism. Now, the, the, the scene of history, according to them, it wasn't going to be easy to get rid of this opposition between the, the, the uh, market economy kind of thing with specialization and uh, very considerable material wealth and the, 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 the other kind of country, the, which uh, monarchist or whatever it was, uh, which uh, was very tightly organized. Uh, and Hume uh, said that they, they might really have to live together and learn what they could of one another. Things like uh, dramatic performances and all that thing were, were very often better done in, in the, the, the uh, monolithic and centralized and monarchical societies, politeness too, doctrinal deference and so forth. The, 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 and uh, the, this was the, the, the point, well, it was generally taken by, by, by an Oxbridge table, all the rest of them uh, would have taken that for granted. But it, it's worth mentioning that because Hume's about the only Scottish philosopher who does discuss politics. There wasn't any politics in Scotland, and the rest of them don't discuss it. But, but, but um, the, the, now, uh, of course, we see at the moment, I've seen to see, this is dissolving so to speak, to the end of history, and, and uh, that uh, the market economy is going to spread right to the rest of Europe, maybe it will. But uh, this wouldn't have put him about, of course, you see, at all, because uh, there's lands, hills beyond Pentlands and lands beyond Forth, so to speak. There are the Ayatollahs and so forth, and there are the Chinese, and, and uh, so forth, and they may well develop in other ways. And you still get, or still could get, this kind of thing, requiring, of course, a certain amount of military defence, what uh, the Cold War is, perhaps not, but Professor uh, Chomsky, in a way, is about the Cold War, but uh, in whatever way these two oppositions would arise. Now, of course, this raises again the question, again, I'm speaking about the classical, more the Germans than the the Scots in the, the, the better moments of the German, could you not get a, a, a fair government, an egalitarian government that could eliminate the necessity for armed forces, the forces of, not the only forces of the Crown, the police, the, the, the prisons or whatever. Could you not get this? And of course, there there is this study of the, the, the victory of egalitarianism, which has happened in various revolutions. The, the great one being the French, but to some extent, of course, there was the English, there was also the Russian one. But of course, the point that came out there, and it's very interesting, that, 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 um, uh, uh, that the attainment to power by a well-designed egalitarian <laughs> government 
Sorry. They, 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 oh yes, I'm, 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 I'm terribly sorry. They, they, but they, they attain with the power by an all-round egalitarian government that contains one very curious and disturbing consequence, according to experience, and this is the terror. And the terror, what is the terror directed against? It's not so much against the people, with their various views, but perhaps the majority accepted. The terror is directed by the Committee of Public Safety or the Politburo against one another. They've got to remain together where they dread the business of uh, uh, people dividing, because, I mean, unity is strength. And therefore, the, the, even in the extreme case of, of um, the, 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 the victory of a, a, a egalitarian, an honestly egalitarian uh, government, you, you can't get rid of this uh, concept of terror, which of course is applied further to the populace in general, but there it is, and uh, the, the, the French, of course, the, the Russians, and there was something of that, no doubt, in, in, in the revolution in the, uh, the 1640s in Cromwell, and uh, that kind of thing. Now, that, that, uh, the, 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 these, are, these are points which uh, Professor Chomsky was aware of, but uh, they, 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 they've been uh, tended to be left in, 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 in the background. They, 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 and and, and um, I may say, actually, not to boost myself, but something else, you see behind me, uh, I notice common sense. And there are some copies of the magazine there. It's, a, it's produced in Edinburgh, and a terribly unequal magazine, I may say, but the main, one of the main writers in it, Richard Gunn, is a most intelligent man, and the best, the only Scot I know, that has written illuminatingly about uh, Marx and Hegel and so forth. And he's got some very interesting analysis about this terror stuff. Anyway, that is the first main point. Now, the second point can be made, and last point, I hope, can be made rather more uh, quickly. It has to do with um, the business of uh, the philosophical politics and where the uh, philosophy uh, and these things come in. They, they, somebody was saying uh, people did the action and other people, the thinkers, took the credit. This is maybe so. They also, of course, since action is more liable to go wrong than to go right, the thinkers, insofar as they take the credit, are also the people who get the blame. You know, when we discuss the French Revolution in a popular kind of thing, the famous phrases, uh, is the fault uh, Rousseau's, is the fault Voltaire's, and so forth. They, 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 but they, 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 now, uh, the, the point is that this intellectual thing is not by any means valueless, and, and one can refer to Professor Chomsky's own work. I can take, for example, one of his common friend, Harry Bracken. It's a point that Chomsky has spoken about in one of his books. And the question Harry was raising was a very the embarrassing and difficult one uh, version of racism. It's in, in our paper, Lock and Race. But it had particular 
reference to the business of color and intelligent behavior. Now, they, they, is there a connection or not? They, they, now, according to the way it was Hume, too, to this up, but uh, orthodox science following him, there's one way of settling that, and that is a great many behavioristic, careful studies about defining what intelligent behavior would be, creative behavior, and then in this part of the world and that part of the world, and the group of this color or that color, and with immense labor, you, you arrive at a, a not absolutely certain generalization at the end, which is liable to exceptions. Now, th this uh, is the orthodox ways of Nazism, the, the, the intellectual background to the rise of Nazism. It was a, 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 the, the rise of acceptable German Wissenschaft interpreted as a rather crude behavior, scientific theory. As soon as you get into this business of deciding by means of thorough analysis, behavioristic studies of the, the business of a, a color, of a bodily structure, and the connection of intelligence behavior, you're on to the business of measuring skulls and all the rest of it, and the, 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 the most absurd and, and horrible racist things can be kept alive. Now, the, 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 uh, what Harry was saying, and uh, what uh, uh, Chomsky uh, the, the, uh, yeah, ascribed to, was that, of course, this is uh, that uh, uh, color, the, the color of an object, a person, uh, has evidently no connection with uh, the, 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 the intelligence behavior. This seems to be fairly clear, various things do. Uh, the, 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 this doesn't. And, and, and uh, the, 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 this is, you can call it common sense, you can call it what you like, but uh, this is more correct. Uh, this is uh, a point where science has gone wrong uh, can go wrong and can go dangerously wrong. They, 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 um, now, uh, uh, this point can be extended further. The, 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 uh, if we go back again to, to our business of the variety of communities, there are advanced communities with the division of labor and all the rest of it, and market economies, very rich and very wealthy and so forth, like Professor Chomsky was saying, how dominating the American one was, and there are backward economies, and, and uh, with, with uh, poorer division of labor, uh, that kind of thing, uh, with not the wealth to keep it up. Now, one of the most interesting features, it comes from Rousseau, but, but, but it was elaborated by the Scottish philosophers, Adam Ferguson, and none more eloquently and clearly than Adam Smith, was that there's another side to the thing. There's a, a, an old notion that, that, that uh, wealth corrupts, and on analysis, this is not entirely false. That they, an exaggerated, uh, ex overextended division of labor that doesn't uh, uh, keep people out of touch with one another can lead to a general moralization of society. The, the countries, of course, have, have ways of defending themselves against that. But you can see that the advanced countries sometimes seem to be in danger of that. Now, the other kind of countries, the poor countries, at least don't have that danger. 
because they, they tend to be Jackson all three. Well, putting it in another way, uh, uh, Smith's thing, that um, he, he contrasted agriculture with uh, 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 factory production. And that the agricultural laborer in that time had to be more or less a generalist. He did all the, the various jobs. And, and the, 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 the factory worker, of course, was much more specialized. And the, the, the backbone, it was this unspecialized agricultural labor that was the vehicle of good sense. Because this has gone, but, but, but there were ways against it, education and so forth. This was the main way, way that they, they, they did in various countries in America. But uh, nevertheless, the, the, the poorer countries the, 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 um, and, and backward countries and so forth are not absolutely without results against the, 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 the richer countries. Uh, this is not uh, human, it's you know, a built-in thing. Law, it's not exactly self-determination, it, it's, it's the way things are. The, the backwardness has redeeming features. The, 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 uh, we kept a lot of the, these things in Scotland for various reasons. One was the 45 Rebellion. That was a, a terrifically traumatic event. In the south of Scotland, they thought of themselves 30 years after the Union as the improved part of the country, and the Highlands were the unimproved part of the country. And when the rebellion broke out, they found themselves absolutely incapable of defending themselves against the unimproved part of the country. Their great-grandfathers were taken down the pikes from the wall and faced up to the Highlanders, but, but um, they just couldn't do it at all. They, they, they had just to, to, to open the gates of Edinburgh. And, and hope for the best, and then finally get the English in. Uh, well, this is what Adam Smith says, to, to break the power of, of the, the clans of the nobility. That's what the Scots did. And, and, and uh, they, they, but, um, they, they nevertheless, they kept, uh, whatever reason, uh, uh, and many other countries have a memory of this, and uh, I don't know, it's... Uh, the, the, Gellner is an amusing philosopher, some of a phrase like, um, which amuses me always very much, uh, tribalized peoples distrust experts. And of course, we have been a tribalized, tribalized people, not merely until late in the literal sense. Uh, people have liked to compare Glasgow in the 19th century with one of the great African cities. The, 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 but the, the tribalization has gone on, but uh, the, 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 in various ways. But um, it still is the official doctrine of the country that they distrust specialization. Well, that more or less is what has to be said. There is considerable criticism of the science is the great thing, but there's criticism of the dangers of science and going astray, not through any wickedness or anything, and the great uh, book on that, of course, is Husserl's Crisis of the European Sciences. He was a mathematician originally, and the point, the main point of it is that, of course, <laughs> mathematics unveils the world and gives us more power, but as soon as you get a new and more powerful form of mathematics and so forth, you forget the old one that's buried in it and forget the reason of the old one, so that the way the more power we have over the world through the mathematics, as we do, the less we understand it, the more mysterious it is to people. And that this could, again, this is the sort of occasion 
Uh, another thing is that this was labor stratification scientifically. This, they, they, they put the, well, the, 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 that um, is about, well, I must uh, stop. There was the one point of the common sense that the Scots have used as a word. Without uh, read, uh, but they uh, all natural belief. But the important point is that common sense was a technical term introduced by Aristotle. And uh, if you, people who, the, 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 it has to do with the interlacing of the senses. It, it's the, we don't know anything about our brains except the end organs, ears, eyes, and things. We know a bit about them. And it's the controlling that part, the child's learning that, to, to, to um, the, 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 the determine the sight, the size of things at a distance and so forth, quite a difficult thing. They are determining the, the, the measurability of time, finding out that it nods off and that doesn't notice it and so forth. And this is to do with the meeting with other people. I'm not going to go upon the one. You can see that there are great difficulties about the point that Chomsky and Harry Bracken had raised about uh, common sense, the, these um, rational things that we are supposed to be available to. And uh, there's a good deal in uh, uh, Fussell, some of the Scottish philosophers and so forth, to try to wrestle with these problems. Well, I just leave it there. It's just putting a, a question, uh, one or two points that, uh, uh, that, that, you know, Chomsky could perhaps, or you could perhaps be stimulating to think about yourself. Thank you very much, and I hope you're happy.